Matthew chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 11. The title of this message is The Problem with Us and Prayer. The Problem with Us and Prayer from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. So we'll read the text, I'll pray, and we'll get into it. It's Jesus speaking here, and it starts in verse 7 of Matthew 7. And Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if you ask for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are our Father, our good, good, perfect, heavenly Father. And thank you that through Christ we have become the beloved daughters and sons of God. Thank you. Thank you that this morning as we sit here in this place, we sit here as loved by you. More than we could ever imagine in deeper, more mysterious ways than we have the capacity to fathom, we are loved by you. For you, God, are love. And we are the objects of your love through Christ. Thank you, God. And you, God, are also good. And we ask that this morning, in the craziness of our world, in the dissonance of our inner beings, and all the stuff that's going on, we would remember, we'd be reminded, we would receive an increase of faith in the fact that you are good and you give us good gifts. So we bring our hearts before you this morning and our minds and our dramas and our difficulties and we submit them to your love and to your goodness and to your sovereignty. And we trust you to do a good work in us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is a teacher of all things. We ask together, God, that Holy Spirit, you would please anoint me to teach and preach in a way that is faithful to the Bible, brings glory to Jesus, and is helpful to this church. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start out uh, talking about this text that has to do with prayer with a little class participation. So we're going to take a little class survey here, a little church survey, and everybody has to respond to one of these two questions, okay, by showing of hands. So don't, don't be shy, just be honest. You are in church after all. <laughs> so two simple questions. The first question having to do with prayer that I want to take a little survey on is this. Who here feels that they pray too much? Raise your hand. Okay, hold on, hold on. I'm giving you an opportunity here. Everybody look around. I, I, I don't see any hands. So nobody here is saying that they pray too much. Okay. The second question then is, how many of you feel that you could probably pray more than you do? Raise your hands. 
Okay, look around. That's pretty much it. Some of you don't know what you're doing here and you didn't raise your hand for either one of those. You are the ones who feel that you pray the perfect amount. A third category, no reason to survey you. Good job for you. Isn't it interesting that if the survey had been about eating, the answers, the answers would have been different. If the survey had been about drinking or shopping or worrying, we would have had a different display of raising of hands there. And I want to suggest to you that if we truly believed this text and its implications, we might actually pray too much if it were possible. A problem with us in prayer is that we don't fully grasp what Scripture, and in particular this text, has to say, what Jesus has to say about prayer. In this text, Jesus is inviting us to pursue God. He's inviting us to pursue God in a particular way. He's inviting us to pursue God as good and generous Father. Extending an invitation to pursue God in prayer as good and generous Father. Now, the, the glorious truth of the gospel is that we have been pursued by God. We were rebellious sinners. And God, in his love and in his grace and his mercy, pursued us. Jesus came, sent by the Father, and said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. And Romans says, there are none who are good, none who seek after God. God himself has come after us. That is the glorious truth of the gospel, is that we have been radically pursued by God in his love. But the beautiful implications of that gospel are that through the fruit of God's pursuit of us, we have now been brought into real, meaningful, loving relationship with God. And every relationship involves mutual pursuit now. I have a 16-year-old son who has a girlfriend, his first girlfriend. And this thing is like for real. <laughs> she's awesome. She's from, from church. She's the most godly person he or I know. So it's all good. <laughs> but like this thing is for real. And he doesn't know I don't, he doesn't know I know this, so don't tell him this. And he won't watch the podcast or anything, so it's fine. But... <laughs> There was recently a little bit of drama between them, and I heard this through my wife, her, who heard it through his mom, her mom, right? So this is like moms talking about their kids dating. But she recently said to Isaiah, my son, she said, and you know what? It was in the middle of a little discussion. You need to pursue me. Their one-year anniversary will be on November 11th this year. She's like, we're coming up on one year, and you don't pursue me like you used to. <laughs> she gets what we need to get, that every relationship involves mutual pursuit. And Jesus here is inviting us as those who have been wonderfully pursued by the radical love of God to also pursue God 
It was good, loving, generous father. And the language that he gives us here, the verbs that Jesus uses for this invitation are our pursue type of verbs. Ask, seek, and knock. Jesus says we are to be asking and seeking and knocking. This is engagement language. This is pursuit language. This is intentional language. It might be that they are just sort of redundant, synonymous verbs speaking about the same thing. Or it might be that they picture a building of intensity and intentionality of our pursuit of God. Either way, these are words of action about how we are supposed to be pursuing God. Asking, seeking and knocking, intentional words of relational engagement through prayer in this instance. Now, part of the problem with us and prayer is that we predominantly view prayer as a way to get what we want. It's part of the problem with us and prayer. So we predominantly view prayer as a way that we can get what we want from God. But maybe God views prayer as a way by which he gets what he wants. After all, in the last chapter, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. My kingdom come, my will be done. Is that what he said? No, that's not how we're supposed to pray. Father, you're holy, but my kingdom come and my will be done. No, it's Father, you're holy, your kingdom come, your will be done. In other words, Jesus taught us that prayer is a means by which God gets his stuff done. Part of the problem with us in prayer is we view it, by the, we view it as a means by which we can get what we want from God. My kingdom come, my will be done. God, you do it for me. But prayer is not meant to be, in particular, a means to our ends. Prayer is meant to be a means through which God achieves his purposes. And God's purposes are multitudinous. But for our purposes this morning, his main big purpose is this. That through the cross of Christ, we who are sinners and rebels have been reconciled to God and brought to him. God's big, awesome purpose is to bring us back to himself in daily dependent, loving relationship with him. That's God's purpose. So God is going to use prayer to achieve his purpose of us being in daily dependent, loving relationship with him. And if you think about it, that purpose, relational connection with God, might be why prayer actually exists. If you've ever done a um, basic Bible study on the attributes of God, you begin to understand pretty quickly that prayer actually makes very little sense in light of some of the attributes of God. We'll just take three of the biggies, for example. We'll take the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, and the sovereignty of God. Three attributes of God. The omniscience of God means he is all-knowing. He knows all things all the time. If God knows everything, then why on earth do we pray? <laughs> and before Jesus even taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he said, your father already knows what you need before you ask. And then he says, pray this way. If God is all-knowing, why, 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 why do we even pray and tell him stuff? And you hear prayers, we're like telling stuff. God, here's what's going on. He's like, I know. 
If God is omnipotent, all-powerful, that means, then why do we often feel as though we are helping God through prayer? Why do we feel that our prayers are help to God? He's all-powerful. He doesn't actually need our help. And if God is sovereign, and the Bible asserts from beginning to end that God is sovereign, that is to say God knows what he's going to do, and God is going to do what he's going to do, and you're not going to get God to do anything he doesn't want to do. If God is really sovereign, and the Bible asserts that, then why do we pray? Logically, and even theologically, prayer doesn't make much sense. But relationally, prayer makes a lot of sense. Because prayer is more than getting what we want or getting to God to do what we think he ought to do. Prayer is a loving gift from the Father by which we are invited to get to know, experience, and be formed by him. And that's his purpose that we would know him, that we would experience him, and that we would be formed by his love. And prayer is meant to do that. That's what this invitation from Jesus is. Have you ever known anybody in your life, there's there's some of these people in your church here, a lot of them, I should say, who, who, who pray so much that there's like this essence or this vibe about them of prayer. It's like they know a secret that nobody but them and God knows. Do you know anybody like this? You don't? Okay. Well, they're all at my church. I know people like this. (laughs) No, I know know a couple of them. They're like those intercessor types, and they literally spend so much time in the prayer closet and so much time in prayer that when you're around them, you're like delighted but a little nervous. (laughs) Because you know they know something about you that only God knew, but then God told them, and now they know, and they're coming to you, and you're like, oh. But there's this essence of joy and glow about them because they've been with the Lord. It's not most of us, but there are people like that, isn't there? Here's why I think prayer is hard for most of us. is because we are so radically goal-oriented. Can I get an amen? We're just like, okay, here's the goal, and I'm going to get her done. But God is surprisingly process-oriented. We are all about the results, but God is all about the relationship. And so there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Now, now prayer does often produce uh, or have goals and produce results, but God is more concerned with the process and with the relational formation between us and him than with the goals and the the end game than we are. Because he's sovereign. And he knows the beginning from the end. He already knows the goal and accomplished the goal and is going to handle the goal. He is interested in you, in your heart, in your experience of his love toward you and his goodness toward you and the forming of your hearts and your minds around his love and his truth. So we're like radically goal-oriented. How do I just get there? And he's like, slow down, dude. It's this process and it's relation. (laughs) So, 
I think when we read this text, we read it thinking, oh, good, this is about me getting what I want. I mean, Jesus said there, right, if you, if you, if you ask, it'll be given to you. If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, the door will be opened to you. So that just sounds like getting what we want language. But it is meant to be an invitation to experience what God wants, which is us experiencing his love and being known by him. And he himself is the ultimate goal. Think about for a moment your favorite verse. Your favorite verse is either Romans 8, 28, which we'll get to in a moment, or it is <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11. <laughs> right? That's the Christian one that everybody gets tattooed right here. Like Jeremiah 29. Don't even tell me if you have that. I know you do. Jeremiah 29, 11, which we'll put on the screen right now with some other verses, says this, you know it very well. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a hope and a future. Pause right there, give me your attention. We love that verse. Because it's God saying originally to Israel when they're in exile to Babylon, but extrapolated to us, it is God saying, look, I've got good plans for you. Nothing bad, all good stuff, all gravy, it's good. That's why we love that verse. That's why it's a tattoo verse. But did we ever stop to read the following verses? Where God says how we ought to respond in light of the fact that he has good plans for us. So look what he says next. Then, okay, in light of that, or subsequent to that, or in response to that, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Now, when you read that, that tells us very clearly that God intends for us to know that he himself is the goal. Not the good plans that we get all caught up in and we're all interested in. He says, I'm sovereign and I'm all-knowing and I'm all-powerful and I am good. I've got good plans for you. Now set those aside for a moment. I've got that covered and you come and discover me. That's what sits behind this text that Jesus is giving us. God has for us this relational discovery and delight in him, but the tension is we get caught up in the plans. And so we, we, we read the text and we hear the text wrong. And so when we see that text, Jeremiah 29, 11, we have to begin to ask ourselves, is my goal the same as God's goal? God's goal clearly for me in that text is himself. And the goal of the cross was that we might be reconciled to God, that we might know him. Part of why we come to church, part of why we hear sermons, part of why we read scripture, part of why we pray is so that our goals could be aligned with God's goal. God's goal for us is him and to know his love. So is my goal lined up with him, with his goal? Can I say like the psalmist said, Lord, besides thee, there's nothing I desire on earth. Your love, O oh Lord, is better than life. And I think for a lot of us, there's, um, 
a lot of dissonance around that because we know that theologically, maybe we knew these verses, we know that concept, we know he's meant to be our greatest treasure, but we have a lot of competing treasures. And it seems that in our prayer spaces, the competing treasures often take priority and what we're asking for and what we're seeking and what we're knocking about are those competing treasures. And that's okay. There are other things that are good gifts from God, but there is a primary treasure who is God himself that we're to be most concerned with. I think about Psalm 37.4, which says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, again, if we've been sort of misunderstanding the concept that it's about my kingdom come and my will be done, and I know the plans that God has for me, good plans, if we've been seeing things that way, then we also read this verse incorrectly. We see God as a means by which we get whatever we want. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart, whatever you want. But I don't think that's what it means. I think it means if we learn to delight ourselves in the Lord and his love and who he is and what he's done for us, that he will give us, place in us new desires. Deeper desires for him. To know him. To be known by him. And I think that maybe Jesus' invitation here, this process of asking, seeking, and knocking, is the process by which we become surprised at what actually are the desires of our heart. You know, the good thing about prayer is that there's no, uh, there's no wrong prayer or prayers or dumb prayer or prayers. As long as we keep on praying, God will always be working. So like we might be praying for the wrong things, but as long as we're pursuing after God, then he's forming those thoughts. He's forming those affections. He's reforming those feelings. He's realigning and readjusting and recalibrating those passions around him. Right, and he said at the second part of verse 11, Jesus said, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And part of the Christian journey is that we reimagine what good gifts are. In the beginning, we have our own idea about what good gifts are and what would be good for us and what God ought to give us and how God ought to supply. But when we begin to discover the joy of being known by him and knowing him, there is a transformation that happens in our assessment of what is good. And so I find that many times what I consider to be a good thing is not what God had in mind as being a good thing for me. And therein is some, some of the tension in prayer. Here's another third, third and final question about prayer. How many of you have ever prayed and received a no answer or a non-answer, however you want to say it? How many of you ever prayed and not gotten what you asked for? Raise your hand. Be honest now, you're in church. Okay, look, look around. The, the vast, almost everybody raised their hands and said, I have prayed and asked the Lord in light of what this text says and had a no answer or a non-answer prayer, however you want to say that. That is part of our experience with prayer that we need to be honest about. And part of the problem with prayer is that sometimes the answer is just no. And honestly, that can create, I think, between us and God, deep feelings of relational dissonance. 
Think about the grammar of the psalmist in Psalm 102, the language around this, where he said, Hear my prayer, Lord. Let my, cry, let my cry for help come to you. Don't hide your face from me when I'm in distress. Turn your ear to me when I call. Answer me quickly. Listen to the frustration in the voice of the psalmist. He's essentially saying like, Lord, are you listening to me? I need help here. I'm in a bad situation. Don't hide your face from me as him saying, I just feel like you're absent when I'm in the space and place of deep distress. And then he says, turn your ear to me when I call. Answer me quickly. In other words, Lord, you're not doing anything and it's been too long without any response and I'm in this deep place of distress and you feel absent. Are you even hearing me? Can anybody relate to that feeling? Be honest, now you're in church. Man, I can. In my life, in the life of my family, our biggest, most desperate prayers were unanswered or answered with a no. When our daughter was diagnosed with cancer, struggled with it for four years, and then she died. Man, our prayers were desperate. Some of you prayed for us. All the people all around the world prayed for us. And yet she wasn't healed. And those, those experiences with prayer create real disappointment in our lives. Those experiences in prayer can create deep disillusionment. Disillusionment and even anger. And that affects the way that we go to God. That affects the way that we understand, feel, and sense a text like this. In the last three months, I've sat with three families from our community who lost children. And you know, when, when you sit with a family who's lost a child, you. There's nothing you can do for them. There's nothing you can say to make them feel any better. There's no verse in the moment that's going to make them be like, oh, yeah, everything's fine. Like, all you can do is try to point them to God. But in times like that, where we experience what feels like ultimate loss, an ultimate ripoff, an ultimate failure, an ultimate no, it can be hard to go to God in those spaces. Maybe that's like what Jesus is talking about when he says knock. Maybe knocking is a more aggressive thing than just asking or seeking. There are times in life where it's okay, I'm, I'm going to ask God for this. There are times in life where like I'm, I'm seeking, I'm pursuing. It's not that God is hiding and we can't find him, but like that word seeking, like I'm pursuing, I'm really going after this. And there are times in life in desperation when we are pounding on the doors of heaven saying, please God. Jesus gives us permission to be in all those postures in our going to the Father. And there's tension in that space that we all experience. We all experience that. The psalmist experienced that. In another place, let's read a little bit from Psalm 55. Listen to the desperation in this prayer. He says, give ear to my prayer, O God, and don't hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. 
I am restless in my complaint and I am surely distracted. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. And my heart is in anguish within me and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror has overwhelmed me. And so I said, oh Lord, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and finally be at rest. Behold, I'd wander far away and I'd lodge in the wilderness. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. The psalmist there is feeling and expressing what we often feel and maybe don't even have the language to express where it's like the reality of deep pain, deep loss, deep disappointment, trust broken, wounds, the storm, the wind. He says, I wish I could just fly away and disappear from the storm. Sometimes that's the posture of real prayer. And unanswered prayers, which it sounds like, you know, this guy was like experiencing unanswered prayers. God, come on, answer me can create those deep places of disappointment and doubt. And we need to identify what we're doubting in those times so that this Holy Spirit and Scripture can help us. What, what we're doubting in those times is the goodness of God as Father. That's what we're doubting. I, I have deep and real doubts about the goodness of God when my daughter died at eight years old. After those all years of suffering, I had real doubts about the goodness of God. And it's important to identify what that is so that we can let God's Spirit lovingly begin to heal us in that area. When we're met with no answers, when we're in those places of disillusionment and disappointment, when it seems like God isn't doing what we would have Him do, what we often doubt is the goodness of God. Now, it's also important that we know that we are not the only ones to have no answers to our prayers. Think about the greatest no answer to any prayer in the history of the world. Who was it? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of the cross, where Christ himself faced with the reality of the horrors of the cross, that he would be betrayed by those whom he loved, that he would be mocked, beaten, scourged, spit upon, nailed to the cross, shamed there, hanging naked, suffer and bleed to death. Facing that, but not only that, also facing the reality that God would place upon him all the sins of humanity, that that would be a real thing that he would experience far beyond the physical horror, the spiritual weight of the sins of the world coming upon him as the father turned his face away, as the son who knew no sin became sin for us, 1 Corinthians 5.21, 2 Corinthians 5.21. As he faced the reality of that, Jesus prayed and asked the Father three times to get out of that. 
right? It says in Matthew 26, 39, Jesus went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and he prayed. And we know he prayed this three times. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Man, that was a, a desperate prayer in the garden. In his humanity, facing the physicality of the cross, in his deity, knowing full well what it would mean to take on the weight of the sins of the world to become sin on our behalf, he literally prayed, Father, if there is any other way for them to be saved, please, 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 not this. We're told that this prayer was so desperate that Jesus sweat great drops of blood. He was so distressed that the pores in his skin were oozing blood. And his father said to him, no. And Jesus was able to say in that great Gethsemane moment, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And the only reason that Jesus was able to say that and survive that moment in Gethsemane was because he was fully and utterly convinced of the goodness of his father. For he knew the father intimately. And we see that the, the, the rhythm and the tone and the tenor of Christ's life throughout the Gospels were that he would frequently withdraw from everybody else, go up on the mountain by himself and and pray. He had this intimacy with the Father, cultivated. Of course, as a second member of the Trinity, he just had it, but in his experience on earth, he cultivated this oneness with the Father so that in the Gethsemane moment, and we will all have Gethsemanes, we will all have and have had Gethsemanes. He was able to say, but I trust your will, Father. For he knew that the Father was good. He trusted that. So we look at Christ, our Savior, and we say in our hard places, in our deep disappointments, in our delusions, when it feels like there's no one on the other side of the knocking, we say in faith because Christ believed it, our Father is still good. And man, that, that's, for me to say that is no trite theological preacher thing. That is deeply held, hard fought for, lost and regained faith with the help of the Holy Spirit. Think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul also knew no answers to prayer. The Apostle Paul had something that he called a thorn in the flesh. He doesn't tell us specifically what it was. It may have been some spiritual affliction. It may have been a physical affliction. It may have been some emotional mental affliction, but he had this thing that was so tormenting to him, he said it was a messenger from Satan, and he asked God again three times to take it away. Paul, the apostle. God said to him, no. Jesus responded and said, my grace is sufficient for you. So then look at how Paul speaks about prayer later on in Romans chapter 8. He says this, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Because we don't often, we, we don't know how we ought to pray. 
We don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us through wordless groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that, and here's your favorite verse, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Man, listen, that was no trite saying for Paul. That was hard, fought, painful theology because he knew what it was to truly suffer, to truly ask, seek, and knock, and hear no. And yet he's able to say there that, and yet God is working all things together for my good. Listen, Paul believed that God's no to him was better than Paul's yes for himself. Paul had taken a journey of transformation of desires and passions and affections and assessment of good and had actually come to the place where he believed that in saying no, there was something profoundly loving and deeply good that God was doing in him. That's faith. And the text calls us to have and to develop and to regain that kind of faith through this continual posture of asking, seeking, and knocking, going to. And that won't always be easy. So what we have to remember ultimately is that, listen to me now, God has once and for all, no matter what happens in your life from this day forward, God has once and for all proven himself to be your good, good father and that he gave his only begotten son to die in your place on the cross. And because he gave his son for you, you know that he loves you more than you could ever possibly fathom. So in every moment where you begin to doubt in the no answers, when the asking feels empty and the seeking seems like it's coming up with nothing and the knocking sounds hollow, you know by looking at the cross of Christ and seeing the way the Father answered Jesus in Gethsemane that you are loved by God more than you could ever know. Therefore, because Christ died on the cross for you, you can trust the good Father's no answers in your life. And all those deep moments of doubt, you go to the cross. You go back to Gethsemane with Christ. Well, God has proven himself to be good because he gave his son on the cross for us. And that is the hope and the anchor of prayer that keeps us living out those verbs of asking, seeking, and knocking. You see, to believe theological truth, we do so because the Bible says it, we do so because the Holy Spirit helps us to believe so, so and we do so through hard-fought living. Yes. Sometimes you've got to fight for the truth that God is good. Yes. When you look around our world, when you look around this city, when you survey your own lives and the trials and the disappointments, everything, including Satan, will be screaming at you that how could God ever be good? I mean, you've got to fight for that truth with the help of the Holy Spirit and by immersing yourself in the Word of God. And that becomes an anchor that keeps us living in the verbs of asking, seeking, and knocking. 
Because Romans 8.32 says, how could God who gave his own son for us not also give us everything else that is good for us? But I would argue that we experience that goodness because it's meant to be relational by asking, seeking, and knocking. And those are words of availability. You know, it's like when someone says to you, hey, you need me? Just call me, dude. Or direct message me or whatever you guys do. (laughs) Those are words of availability. When Jesus says, listen, ask, seek, and knock, and it's in the present tense in the Greek, which it means keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And it's in the imperative mood, which means it's not a suggestion, it's a command. When Jesus says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, he's not saying, you need to do that because your father is far off and if you work hard enough, you'll get to him. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, do that because your father is available to you. Just call him. Just text him. Just DM him. Just whatever you do. Just keep asking. Just keep seeking. Just keep knocking because the father is available to you and he is better than we could ever possibly imagine. And I have found that God seems and tastes and feels and is experienced better than ever before in the hardest places. And we'll just keep asking, seeking, and knocking. I sat with a family the other night whose daughter killed herself. And you know, I'm the pastor guy who also had lost a daughter. So they always say to me, why? Explain this to us. I, I, can't, I, I, I can't explain that. And talking about how the pain is so deep and so dark that they're terrified to even go there. And the only thing that I was able to say to them is, when you go there, you will find that your lovingly, heavenly Father is in the deepest, darkest spaces. He is a God who opens up a door of hope in the valley of trouble. So when you're in those spaces, just ask. He's available to you. Just look. Just knock. He's in those deep, hard places. But the great danger is to fail to look for him in those places. And that's my pastoral admonishment to you today. Is to, in those places, keep going after God and you will discover him to be more sweet in those places than ever before. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Refuge means, gosh, I'm in a hard place. I need to get some, some, I just need some salvation here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So the problem with prayer is not that we don't always get what we want. The problem with us in prayer is that in neglecting to ask, seek, and knock, we may miss the experience of God himself in every season of life. So I think if we really got the availability of God that Jesus has given us, we might actually pray too much. But here's where I end. I have found that there are times in life where I have no words for prayer and I have no hope to pray. And there we go back to the good news of the gospel, that it is God himself who has sought after us. Jesus came to seek and to save. And Jesus, Revelation 3.20, stands at the door of our hearts and knocks and says, if anyone opens to me, I will come in and fellowship with him. Sometimes you say, I, 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 I don't even have what it takes to ask, seek, or knock. 
God is already seeking after you, knocking on your door. Today, just hear the knock and open up. The Father is seeking after you. The glorious truth of the gospel is that he is pursuing you in his great love. The beautiful implications are that that means a deep, meaningful relationship for us where hope is restored. Maybe today your only single desperate prayer is please, 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 God, come find me. Psalm 119 ended with the psalmist saying, I've wandered away like a lost sheep. God, come and find me. Pray that prayer today. God will come find you. He's right at the door. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful truths. Thank you for your availability to us. Thank you now, God, that as we worship and pray or just sit in the space that we're in in this life, that you're present to us and seeking after us. And I, I pray for these people whom I love today, that they would be found by you. Pray that you would open our ears to hear the places where you're knocking on our doors. Pray that you would open our eyes to see the places in our lives where you're seeking after us and our hearts and our well-being. Pray that you would help us to understand where you're asking us to come to you in faith and trust and repentance. Holy Spirit, help us to experience the love of the Father this morning and the truth of the cross of Christ. Thank you that you will not turn away any who call upon you this morning, but we will be found by you. We trust you in those things, Lord.